This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I want to talk about biblical prophecy, and I want to talk about the Great Commission Church, and I also want to talk about our friends in the LDS Church. Now, let me just say that Satan wants you to reject Jesus and disbelieve that there'll ever be a second coming. And Satan wants you to deny the reality of biblical prophecy. And Satan does not want you to be part of a great commission church. And finally, Satan wants you to hate Mormons. But Satan isn't going to triumph in this place tonight. Because we're here to carry out the will of our Father in heaven, that his kingdom would come and his will will be done in the earth and in this city as it is in heaven. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we have an unusual listing of the mighty men of David. David was on the run from King Saul. David is going to become king but he's not going to try to take the kingdom by force. So he's on the run, avoiding Saul. And many, many great warriors, mighty men, the Bible calls them, joined him as he hid in caves and and ran for his life. And in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, we have a description of a certain number of men. It says, from the tribe of Issachar, These men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. See, there were men who were not just great warriors, but they were men who were strong in their God and they did exploits. And one of the reasons was, is they knew him and they knew through divine wisdom the signs of the times. And tonight you and I need to be aware of the signs of the times that are being revealed all around us. Because we live in momentous times. Jesus is coming. See, we have plans. We've grown up watching our parents and our grandparents plan and fulfill plans. And many of us make a commitment to Christ and we get involved in his church and we hear God has some plans too and we sort of include God in our plan and we try to support his plan. But I want you to know that the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, established the world and everything in it. He created you and me. He watched as Lucifer deceived the human race And from the foundation of the world, he had a plan to redeem us. And that has been unfolding since the Garden of Eden. And it's unfolding today. And we need to get off of our time zones and off of our calendar and get on to God's. Some of you were here several weeks ago when I spoke on the festivals, the feasts of the Lord. And if you haven't heard that message, I encourage you to to listen to it on uh, CourageousChurch.com or on, on our YouTube channel. 
But these are things that the Lord is doing in the earth and that we can be a part of. Because Jesus is coming. And the Bible describes many signs of the end. And a lot of us don't like the idea of the end. But really the end is just a transition from this age and this era and this chapter to the next. And God has wonderful plans for all of us for time and eternity. And you're not going to want to miss out on any of those. The birth pains described in the Olivet Discourse are increasing. But Jesus says, don't be, don't, be, don't be troubled. They're just birth pains. They're just the initial signs. They're the labor that comes before the birth. And you know, the labor pains at first, they're far apart. But as they, as they intensify and, and, and become closer together, we know it's, it's close to the time for the birthing of the new life. And it's true in this case as well. He calls them the beginning of sorrows. And these, these signs have been taking place around us for a number of decades now. They have. But I want to focus today on three primary end time signs. Three. Number one, deception. And there are numerous references in the Bible to it. Number two, the gospel being preached to every people group and then the end coming, referred to in Matthew 24, 14. And then third, I want to emphasize to you the sign of Israel's rebirth. The rebirth of the nation of Israel, Matthew 24, 15. The first sign, deception, is a warning to us. And we need to be warned because you and I can be deceived we could even be a deceiver. The second warning, or the second sign, the gospel being preached, that's our mandate. That's our mandate. That's our marching orders. We were born with marching orders. The church is different than Israel. If you go back, the church was born with some specific instructions from Jesus. And that's our mandate. The third, Israel's rebirth, is evidence of God's faithfulness. And I believe these three will tie together to help us realize we need to be aware, we need to be about the Father's business, and we need to know that he's going to help us fulfill his wishes. He's going to take us through. And that's amazing. What he said, he will do. So I want you to go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read through verses 1 through 12. It's a lengthy passage, but it's helpful. Listen, and you can read along on the screen. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or even a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I want you to notice here that even the first century Thessalonian church awaited the day of the Lord. They were awaiting it in the first century. Jesus said, if I go, I will come again. And they believed him, and they were waiting for him. And there was such persecution in Thessalonica 
that they thought maybe they were in the midst of the day of the Lord already. And so they, they got word to Paul, and Paul let him know, no, 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 no. So he goes on, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the first century. This mystery is already working itself out. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There it is again. He's coming back. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. I want you to notice three words in this passage. Deceive in verse 3, deception in verse 10, and delusion in verse 11. This is a sign of the end and of the end times. Now the church age begins on the day of Pentecost. We learned that together a couple weeks ago. And it culminates at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the interim period between the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, and the second coming of Christ, that interim period is called the church age. It's, it's the age of grace. And it's the opportunity for the gospel to be propagated throughout the earth. So just a couple takeaways out of this passage in 2 Thessalonians. Number one, Jesus is coming. Number two, don't be deceived. And number three, don't be alarmed as a believer. Don't be alarmed. Paul says, I told you these things before. Now, throughout the New Testament, it does tell us we should be something, though. Don't be alarmed. But what should we be? We should be alert. We should be paying attention. Don't be a Christian lulled to sleep. Be alert, anticipating what's taking place around us. So Luke 24 summarizes, and it's Jesus summarizing. He summarizes the plan. Luke 24, 46. We'll put it up for you. Jesus said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus is just summarizing what's happened and what's going to happen. And he says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, listen to this, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, 
But stay in the city. Stay in Jerusalem until what? Until you're clothed with power. That's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Until you receive power to be a witness from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. Now we pick it up because the same author, Luke, wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, we have a curious scene. Jesus is risen into heaven, and we've got the followers there just standing around, looking up in the sky, thinking, where did he go? And, and, and according to Luke, two men in white stood there with them. They're presumably angels. And this is what they say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He's gone up, and he's coming back. In other words, get about what he told you to do. Get busy. Now, it's fascinating to me that there are 330-plus Old Testament messianic prophecies regarding Christ's first coming. I've taught on them many times, particularly around Resurrection Sunday. I've counted actually 332. It's around 330. It's right in there. Old Testament messianic prophecies regarding the first coming. But did you know that regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, there are over 1,500 prophecies? I bet most of you didn't ever hear that fun fact before. 1,500. Wow. For every single time the Bible mentions the first coming of Jesus Christ, it mentions the second coming eight times. Wow. And these signs of the last days are recorded in Matthew Mark and Luke, and they suggest that there'll be birth pains initially and then culminating signs leading up to the second coming of the Lord. And we've studied it together in Matthew chapter 24 back in October of 2000, two messages that I shared with you. And then in the spring of 2021, a third message on the second coming. And you can look those up and listen to them. They'll be very helpful to you because we'll cover so much that I'm not talking about tonight. So this first sign, deception, it's a warning. Paul shares it three times in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the times of the end, he shares also three times regarding deception. Listen, let's look at him. Matthew 24, verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. That's number one. Then in verse 11, he says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's number two. And then in verse 23, he says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's number three. Now let me just contrast for a second Individual and organized deception. You know, you or I can be deceived. We could be deceived. We could believe a lie. But we could also believe a lie and then perpetuate that lie. 
we could become the promoters of a lie. We could encourage other people to embrace the lie. We could come up with theologies to reinforce the lie. We can be deceived, but we can also deceive. In 2 Timothy 3.13, it says, While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, it's one thing to be deceived, but it's another thing when you deceive others. That's very dangerous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, or if it's hidden, if our gospel is hidden, or if it's veiled, it's like the blinders are shut, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you see? Satan has a plan in all this. You ever heard somebody say, I'm, gonna, I'm not interested in going to church. I really don't want to become a believer. I don't know about all that religion stuff. In fact, I'm going to party with the devil in hell. You ever heard somebody say that? I'm, I'm going to party for eternity in hell. Do you, do you know something? The devil hates your guts, and he hates my guts. And there's going to be no partying in hell with the devil. He doesn't want anything to do with any of us. He hates us. We're the apple of God's eye. All he wants to do is get at God and ruin you and ruin me. And he's doing everything he can to blind people's minds. So they think they're right, but they're off course. And then look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, powerful verse. Paul says, the, the Spirit expressly says, how many places do you see that in the Bible? The Holy Spirit emphatically states something. The Holy Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Other translations just call it like it is, demons. They will devote themselves to demons or deceitful spirits and the teachings of the demons. What? The teachings of demons? The doctrine of demons? You see, there are whole theologies developed in hell to deceive the human race. It's the reality. And God has called us as believers to proclaim the good news and to set the captives free, to carry out the same ministry that Jesus carried out. In fact, Paul goes further. He, he warned that anyone, including an angel from heaven, and we often jump to a conclusion right away when we, ha when we hear that. An angel from heaven. I think Paul was referring to a specific angel. I think he was referring to Lucifer. Any angel, even from heaven, that preaches any other gospel to you than we preached, he says, let them be cursed by God. Do you realize in the 19th century in America there were a number of angelic visitations to individuals who started religious movements? Doctrines of demons propagated by so-called angels. And Paul says if they preach a different gospel than what we preach to you, let them be under the divine curse. Cursed by God. Anathema. It's very strong. 
So the first sign is a warning. But the second sign is a mandate. We are warned, but now we are given marching orders. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom, this good news, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So why hasn't the end come yet? Because the job isn't finished. It's pretty simple. The end hasn't come yet because we haven't finished the task. Now, I've talked in the past about the significance of becoming a Great Commission church. But I want us to focus tonight for a few minutes on the upcoming move from here into Salt Lake City and the opportunity that awaits you there. And I share this from the perspective of one who's lived it. Planting churches, living in the community, starting downtown two blocks from the LDS temple, reaching out and helping people to reach up. First, I want to discuss briefly with you unreached people groups, UPGs, unreached people groups. Need I remind us tonight that people need the Lord? People need the Lord. 2 Peter 3.9 says God doesn't want anybody to perish because people were complaining, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Say, so he's not coming. Everybody's always said he's coming and he doesn't come. Why isn't he coming? Peter says, oh, you don't get it. He's not slow in coming, but he doesn't want anybody to perish in their sins. And he's long-suffering to all of us because he wants people to be saved. That's why. Well, we can argue this two ways. First, we could say, well, the world has been reached. The gospel has already gone to the ends of the earth. Everybody has the potential to hear. How can I say that? 90% of nations of the earth today have the Bible translated in their own language. So it is available to the inhabitants of those nations. And the two primary internet languages, English and Chinese, are being propagated effectively under the banner of the gospel to the ends of the, of the earth. And people have access to that. So we could argue, yeah, we've already finished the task. Jesus could come. And I, I, I'm not going to disagree that I, I'm going to be alert. I'm going I'm to put it that way. I, I don't want to be foolish about this. I want to be alert. I want to be ready. How about you? Let's be ready. You know, we don't have to, we're not going to, you know, predict. We're not going to name dates. We're not going to start telling people, let's go gather on a hill. A lot of people have done that throughout history. Let's keep, let's keep busy and doing what we're doing. Let's, let's march in lockstep with the Lord, but let's be alert. Because he said, at, at what moment do you think? Not. Your Lord may come. Even though we have 90% of the nations with the Bible and the internet is propagating the gospel, 40% today of the world's population are in unreached people groups. That's 3.3 billion people. Primarily Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and people in the Chinese folk religions. 
Unreached peoples have no confirmed, sustained gospel movement or outreach, outreach effort in their midst. And they, they lack, those people groups lack enough followers of Christ or resources to, to evangelize their own people. So the word isn't getting out in those groups. Just in one area, there's 1 billion people in 31 people groups in India, the Middle East, and China speaking 15 different languages. One billion people. Do you realize that's three times the size of the United States of America? Unreached people groups. Now, are some people saved? Yeah, but it's just, just minimal. Just, just, just minimal numbers. And yet Jesus says the gospel will be preached. So that's unreached people. Now let's talk for a minute about the unreached people of Utah. And let's just be wise and say it again, people need the Lord. And there's all kinds of people in Utah. But there's also LDS people in Utah. And I think sometimes, you know, we cut off our nose to spite our face. And we talk about how all the other people we're reaching, but we're, we're not making any effort to reach the predominant people that are here. So let's just, let's have a balance here, all right? Let me just say before I go on. Paul talks about how his heart's desire and his prayer to God for the Jews is that they might be saved. That's what he said. And he said, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. But he says that they are ignorant of God's righteousness, and so they sought to establish their own righteousness and thereby negated the righteousness of God. But he says, my heart for them is they, that they might be saved. That's why Paul went into the synagogue when he went to every city. He'd first go to the synagogue, and he'd preach to the Jews. And then he'd go to the Gentiles as well. So we need to have a heart. I can be honest with you. When I came here at 23, 24 years of age, I had zeal sometimes without knowledge. But I learned over the years, in 15 years of ministry in downtown Salt Lake and then in the Mid-Valley, I learned that we could love people into the kingdom, and that included LDS people. And you know, some people aren't going to respond. It's just like in sales. There's some people that aren't going to buy from you. But that doesn't take away our responsibility to share the opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about the unreached people of Utah. There are 3.5 million people in Utah today. 2.6 million along the Wasatch Front, from Brigham City to Santa Quin. Statewide, the population of the LDS Church today is 60%, or 2.1 million Mormons. In Salt Lake County, that's Metro Salt Lake City. That's Metro from Point of the Mountain to Point of the mountain, just north of the capital. It's 49% LDS. That means there's 600,000 LDS people living in this valley. 600,000. And these are the Mormon church's statistics. Now, let me just make a comparison. The Salt Lake City population is 200,000 people today. That's what the statisticians say. 
If we were to look at a particular people group, the LGBTQ community, which is estimated to be 5% of the population, that's 10,000 people. That's 10,000 LGBTQ individuals versus 600,000 Mormons. And there's a good chance that a lot of that 10,000 are possibly LDS in their background. Now, if it's all of Metro Salt Lake, Salt Lake County, then that number of 5% would go up to 10,000. I'm sorry, 60,000. It'd be 60,000. But every survey I read, every statistic I found, it was Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City, not the valley. But if it is the valley and we give it that, it's 60,000. That means there's 10 times more LDS people, 600,000. So statistically, Utah tonight is the least Christian state in the United States of America. It's the least Christian. Statistically, only 7% of Utah is evangelical. Now, if we look at descriptions of the most religious states in America, Utah ranks high. But we're not talking about whether you're religious or not. Hey, I was raised religious. I get this. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I did not know Jesus Christ. I've shared this with you many times. I was caught up in tradition and dogma, and I was far from God. And I didn't meet Jesus in the Catholic Church. I met him through his word, and I believed the gospel when I heard it. See, the, the assumption that I'm making here is that the religiously deceived members of the LDS Church are not born-again believers, trusting Christ alone for their salvation. Now, if you've talked to Mormon missionaries as often as I have, and as you've talked to as many LDS people since I've started talking to them regularly back in 1983, pre predominantly Mormon missionaries, not just in other states, but here in Salt Lake, and all over the world, places I've gone, many will argue with you and they will tell you, no, we are born again. We're born again as any other person's born again. And we definitely trust Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. But when you get to the bottom of it, there's a whole lot of other baggage that goes along with that. And if you've done any study, you know that I'm telling you the truth. And I'm not going to develop that tonight. That's not my purpose. What I'm talking about here, though, is the deceived and the deceivers. Because there's a difference. And there's a lot of people that are just caught in a lie and who are not perpetuating it just because they believe it and might share it with others doesn't mean necessarily that they're the source of the problem. There are people that are the source. There's no question in any air that's always going to be true. And in the first century, leaders of the, of the apostolic community would stand up against certain aberrant teachers, against false teachers or leaders. They would. They'd stand up against them. But they didn't stand up against all their followers or adherents. They sought to lead them out. Big difference, right? So my question is, of, of all of us, is there a confirmed, sustained outreach effort to the LDS Church currently and ongoing? Is there one? A confirmed, sustained outreach effort. You see, it's true. The LDS Church growth has slowed. But they're still growing at 2% per year worldwide. Back in the 80s and 90s when I was here, 
Statewide, the LDS population was 70%. And Metro Salt Lake was 60%. Some said a little higher. In fact, I've heard, I've heard people rejoice that LDS church growth has slowed. But I think when I've heard some of those voices that it's hardly appropriate to celebrate if we haven't personally engaged in the battle. If we're just on the sidelines and say, oh, the statistics have changed, but we're not doing something to reach out to lost LDS people, then we shouldn't be celebrating. The reality is that the tech-friendly environment of Utah has become the primary component of non-LDS people moving into Utah and the tipping of the scales. It's not a max exodus from the LDS church yet, but it could happen. But the reality is worldwide, the Mormon church has grown to over 17 million people. That's astounding. And, and the point is this. They promote one of the most aggressive efforts to proselytize in the last 200 years. And they lead that effort just a few blocks from where you're moving. Wow. Not only that, the brains or the think tank, BYU, and the Worldwide Training Center, the MTC, is only 25 miles south of here. Remember, the world is the field. We want to reach everybody everywhere. But the commission is to go. And for us to be effective where we've been sent, and if you've been sent to Utah, as I was sent to Utah, it's part of your calling. And if you haven't been sent to Utah, then I would just say you're called to bloom where you've been planted. And hopefully at some point God will bring you around to have a real sense of purpose as well. I want to share a few keys with you that I think can be helpful in some of the things that I experienced when I was here. Some would say, is it... Is this really necessary? Is it really necessary for us to share with, with LDS people? When I talk to them, they say they believe what I believe. They say they believe the Bible. They say they believe in Jesus. They believe in God. They believe in salvation. Is it really necessary? I mean, we, all, we believe the same things. Basically, they just have a few things that are a little different. Now, here's, here's the reality. This is the first key. There are four areas. It's not just the LDS church. It's any religious movement that has perverted the gospel, that have taken these teachings that have come from somewhere else, not out of the Bible. They have four things. They have, number one, extra-biblical authority. Number two, they pervert the nature of God. In the Mormon's case, it's polytheism versus monotheism. That's a big one. Not only are there many gods, but you can become one. It's not biblical. And I've argued with many LDS missionaries, and we've chatted about it, and we've had meals together and talked about it. And it's not a thing of, well, we just have to agree to disagree. It's wrong. Christianity and Judaism is monotheistic. We believe in the one true God of Scripture who presents himself eternally through three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who share the same attributes and characteristics of deity. The three persons are the one God, and I'm not becoming one and neither are you. The next is they diminish the doctrine of Christ. All false teachings do this. They diminish the doctrine of Christ. John talked about it. John. John said, if you don't come along and continue in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God. 
He said, if you continue in the doctrine of Christ, you have both the Father and the Son. The doctrine of Christ. What is the doctrine of Christ? We've been going through it in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the Word, made flesh dwelling among us. Jesus isn't a created man who became a God. Jesus isn't a spirit that, that, that has progressed. Jesus is God from eternity past. And there's a big difference. Now, if somebody wants to believe the other, they can. But this is where it's important for us to know a few things. And then last thing, they add conditions or additions to salvation. What's interesting about these four things is the Roman Catholic Church that I came out of has these same problems. They do. And all extra biblical religious movements do as well. We call it counterfeit Christianity. Why do we call it counterfeit Christianity? Because they're masquerading as Christians. You can be what you want to be, but don't tell me you're the same as me because you, it, it's not biblical Christianity. It's not true. We don't have to be mean to, to, to bring that point home. It's the reality. And I lived it. The next key is relationship evangelism. When you go toward downtown, it's going to be key that you not just try to witness to people and tell them the truth and you're right and they're wrong. You've got to build relationships with people. And when you build relationships with people in Utah, you're going to end up having relationships with a lot of LDS people. That's the point. That's a good thing. Relationship evangelism. Next, cultivate the ground and sow the seed. This is really important. Cultivate the ground. I know you're a praying church. But you cultivate the ground by praying to the Lord of the harvest. You ask of him, and he says he'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. When we came here, we started from before we had our first service doing location prayer. And I don't share anything tonight to contrast with what you're doing. I respect what you're doing, and I encourage you to continue. I'm just telling you what we did historically. We did location prayer. We'd go up behind the Capitol on the hill almost every morning for an hour or so and we'd pray over the valley. We'd go up behind the University of Utah and we'd pray over the city, groups of us. We'd go up to the This is the Place monument and we'd pray over this valley and the people that came to it. We would go down to the south and Sandy up on the hill and pray. We would go downtown and walk the streets praying. We were cultivating the ground. We'd go to the Mormon temple. Now, we went on many tours. We, we asked questions. We got thrown out. We did things that were a little more zealous back in those days. But we also walked around the temple. I can't tell, me, tell you how many times I walked around the world headquarters. I was invited by the historian of the Mormon church. He visited a service at our, our facility, which was three blocks south and three blocks east of the Mormon temple. He visited. The day he was there, two Mormon missionaries got saved. He was a general authority in the church. And he took a liking to me, and he invited me to come to the general headquarters and come up to his office on a high floor. He took me up on the top of the building. Do you know what I was doing when I was there besides being cordial? I was praying. I was praying through that building, and I was praying for God to give those people to me, to the body of Christ, to Jesus as his inheritance. Hallelujah. So we cultivate the ground, and we prepare the ground but we also got to sow the seed. This is where many of us are amiss as believers. Throughout this valley, and I know a lot of pastors, they wouldn't like me saying that. 
They didn't like it when I said it back in the 80s and 90s, and they wouldn't like me to say it now. But we got to sow the seed. you gotta, you got to put the word out there. That's what doesn't return void. Your testimony's good. Share that too. But put some word in there. Give them the word. Let God, let it grow. See, if you plant the seed, you can expect a harvest. But if you don't plant seed, you will never get a crop. And some of us are just doing all this watering, and there's no seed in the ground. And we're doing all this praying, we're cultivating, but there's no seed in the ground. Open up your mouths. That's why you're filled with the Holy Spirit, to be a witness. Okay? It's important. And then boldly, I'm sorry, before that, understand terminology differences. I've done worksheets in the past. I'll give some to, to your pastor. Jason may want to develop him himself, but... It's just important that you know when they say a word, they mean another thing. And when you say something, this is what we mean. This is what biblical Christians mean when we say Jesus Christ, or when we say grace, or when we say salvation, or when we say heaven, or when we say any number of things. We mean specific biblical truths. We don't have a lot of hidden esoteric meanings that we don't really tell people until they get into higher levels of association with us. So it's cr so critical for us to understand. And then boldly declare the truth over error. Be bold. When God tells you to open your mouth, do it and be bold. Don't be mean, but be bold. You represent the king. I used to have Mormon missionaries tell me all the time that I don't have the authority to preach and I don't have the authority to baptize. But they did because they were given authority by the laying on of hands. But I read in John chapter 1 that as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the authority to become the sons of God, the children of God, even as many as believe in his name. It doesn't require the laying on of hands. The Catholic Church and the Episcopalian Church, they tried the same thing. All of our leaders, they had somebody lay hands on them. It goes back to Peter. It goes back to John. It goes back all the way, laying on hands. That's where the authority comes. Our authority comes from God. He can call you out of nowhere and use you to turn the world right side up. Praise the Lord. That's true. And the last one, and this is important. Remember the 414 window. You've heard of different windows, evangelism windows, opportunities in the world. The 414 window. It's simply this. Among Christians alive today, 85% made their first commitment to Jesus Christ between the age of 4 and 14. Between 15 and 19, there's still a percentage, but it's diminished. And 20 and above, it's unlikely the person will ever come to Christ. 98% of Christians came to the Lord before they turned 19. What does that tell us? You got to reach out to the kids and the youth. I want to show you a couple pictures. When we came to Salt Lake, we, we started in the White Memorial Chapel, two blocks from the Mormon Temple in the front yard of the Utah State Capitol. You've seen it before. It's that chapel that's there. We rented it from the state of Utah. That's Brigham Young's old chapel. I used to preach at his pulpit. They moved that building up there. It had all of his pews, his pulpit, the wood. They reconstructed it there. Go up there. Read the plaque. That's where we started the church. We started on Easter Sunday, 1986, and in June, we had a kids' crusade. And you saw the bus a minute ago. Put the bus back up, if you would. We, we bought a bus, and we just started going door to door and knocking on the doors. 
And if we could talk to people about their faith, if we could get a conversation going, great. But we, we had an excuse. We want to invite your kids to the crusade. And we, we drive the bus around that area, downtown, around Rose Park, around everywhere in the downtown west side area. And as you see from the pictures, we had some kids show up. These weren't our kids. Our first service, we had 23 people. We had 150 kids show up for a week of kids' crusade, and we got to meet their parents, and we got to start talking to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they trusted us because they liked what we did with their kids. Now, you guys have had kids' ministry, good kids' ministry from the start, but there's just something about really thinking about and focusing on reaching people while they're young, while they're still pliable, before higher education gets them, before greed gets them, materialism, but all the different, what, what, what gets us? So philosophies of men. So just something to keep in mind. Let's move on to the third and last sign. I'll do this quickly. The third sign evidence is God's faithfulness, because we need this, because it's hard to witness to tough people groups. It's not easy. But God is faithful, and the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the return of it to its former glory encourages us in our mandate, because it tells me that God can do it. Bible prophecy regarding the second coming assumes that Israel is a nation dwelling in their land. But since 722 B.C., when Assyria scattered the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and then in 586 B.C., when Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and exiled the Jews for 70 years, it wasn't until 1948 that the Jews returned to their land to control it, except for one brief period known as the Hasmonean Kingdom of semi-independent rule, very brief period of time. But other than that, there's this 1900-year period where the Jews are under the domination of other nations. Think about that. They were not their own people. That'll just get you to 70 A.D., and then in 70 A.D., here comes Rome under Titus, destroys the city, burns it, tears the temple apart stone by stone, and runs the Jews off to the ends of the earth and tells them, never come back. And that's the way it had been from 70 A.D. until 1948. So go back to 1947 or any time before that when people said, well, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Well, duh. He's not coming until the Jews are back in their land. And you know what people thought? You know what Christians thought? They developed whole theologies. They said, well, the Jews aren't coming back because the Jews blew it. The Jews rejected Christ. And so the church takes the place of the Jews, and the church becomes the inheritor of the promises. And the church, in this replacement theology, will fulfill everything written. And so... We don't need any, anybody in the land, and we don't need a temple rebuilt or anything like that. That was just a bad theology by some, some, some Bible students. That's all it was, because it's not true. As we learned when we studied the feasts, God has his feasts. They're eternal, perpetual feasts. And in fact, as I read these passages in preparation for tonight, God says once we get into the millennial temple and the Jews are in the land and Jesus is reigning 
from the temple, we're reinstituting the feasts. God says, we're reinstituting the feasts because they're his feasts. Think about that. See, God has a plan. We can be a part of it. So Israel was ruled by somebody else. Like who? The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Turks, the Crusaders, the Byzantine Empire, the Arabs, the Mamluks, and British rule right up to 1947. See, the point is, we have always known Israel as a nation during our lifetimes. We just always assume that they've been there. They haven't been there, guys. They have been scattered for 1,900 years to the ends of the earth. So all of the prophecies regarding Israel could not be fulfilled if they were not a nation. But I want you to know something tonight, and this is probably as important thing as I will say. God is not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. You say, that's not very profound, Jim. I think it's very profound. Just think about that. He is going to do what he said he will do. In 48, they were reborn. In 67, they, they, they win the Six Days War miraculously. They add Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria, who remembers those? Jesus went through Samaria. That's the woman at the well. Judea, that's where David hung out. That's where Jesus ministered. That's where Jerusalem is on the border. Do you know what it's called by international nations? Do you know what Judea and Samaria are called today? Anybody? The West Bank. They don't recognize Judea and Samaria. And the international plan, which is in place right now and supported by most of the nations in the UN, like the majority, just a couple don't believe in it, it's to divide the land and give it to the UN as a neutral piece of ground and give it to the Palestinians. Take it away from the Jews. We'll get back to that in just a second. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. And just really quickly, Moses tells the children of Israel that God sets, them before, sets before them blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings. You obey God, you'll be blessed. You disobey God, you follow other gods, you'll be cursed. And so he rehearses that, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set up before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Obviously, they disobeyed. And you return to the Lord God, you and your children, you obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore you and your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. That was the promise from Moses. So the efforts to destroy Israel and to negate the promises to Abraham that through Abraham's seed all the earth would be blessed... They're very evident. Similar efforts to destroy the seed, to destroy Jesus Christ. Herod tried to destroy him. Satan tried to destroy him in, in the temptation in the wilderness. The, the rulers of this world tried to destroy him. Paul says if the rulers of this world had known, they would have never crucified the Lord, Lord of glory. See, interrupt the plan. God's plan's going forward. 
Now look at Joel 3.2. It says, I will gather the armies of the world in the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will judge them for harming my people, my special possession, for scattering my people among the nations, and for dividing up my land. It's God's land. God says it's his land. Wow. They're his feasts, and that's his land. And he's not real happy that the nations of the earth want to divide it up. And he's not going to allow it. So the nations are going to align themselves against Israel, which precedes the second coming of Jesus. Now, wrapping it up, the timeline, Ezekiel 37. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. You need to read it. I read it this morning. I almost started weeping. It's so powerful. The Valley of Dry Bones. God breathes life into the into the skeletons of the Jews scattered throughout the earth, and he brings them back into the nation. Ezekiel 38, Gog of Magog. God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaw, and I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to bring you down to the land of Israel, and you're going to attack my people. Now think about this for a minute. Gog of Magog. He's the prince of Meshach. Who is he? He's the leader of Russia. Magog is Russia. Meshach is Moscow. God says specifically, and he gives the geographic location of these nations in the prophecies of Ezekiel 38. He says Russia and Persia, that's Iran, they changed their name to Iran, Sudan, Libya, and Turkey, the eastern and western tribes, will be led by Gog. He says, I will put hooks in your jaw and I will bring you out. Could Putin be Gog? He certainly could. He could be a, he could be a, 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 a Gog type as well. But Putin, who invades Ukraine and who says, I want to reassemble the satellite nations of the Soviet Union, Putin, who has a close tie now, not just with Iran, but also with China, but with Iran. Do you know who the scientists are in Iran who are, who are cooperating with the scientists uh, that are developing the nuclear arsenal? Do you know who they are? They're Russians. Now, what do you think will happen when Israel, who again this week said, while Biden was with them, and who said for the last several months, as the alarm bells went off, Iran nearly has the nuclear bomb. They may have it right now. And what did Israel say? They said to Russia, you can read it, just Google it. They said to Russia, we will not allow it. We will strike. Israel then said to the United States of America several months ago, we will strike. We will disallow this. There will be no nuclear bomb pointed at Israel because no, we know that's what Iran wants to do. Now, just think with me. If Israel strikes Iran, what do you think Russia will do? I realize it's speculation, but it's a great opportunity for God to put a hook into the mouth of the leader of Russia, the leader of Moscow, Putin, and drag him down and all his hordes with him. Many Bible teachers, prophecy experts believe that this will be the first phase of the battle. There will be an attack on Israel because Israel attacks Iran, and that could happen anytime. And when Russia comes down, God says he's going to wipe them out. And you can read what happens in Ezekiel chapter 
38. It's fantastic. You can read it tonight. It will blow your mind. It says it'll take them seven months to bury the bodies. But that's not Armageddon. Armageddon is in Ezekiel chapter 39. 37, Valley of Dry Bones, Israel back in the land. People regathered. Ezekiel 38, Russia invading. Ezekiel 39, the battle of Armageddon when all the nations of the, of the earth unite, including China, and march to the Valley of Megiddo, and they will be judged there by Jesus Christ. It's coming, and it's coming soon. So Daniel in chapter 9 gives us the 70 weeks prophecy. It's predictive, and he's, he says that it's through Gabriel. Gabriel says, it's your people, the Jews. It's your holy city, Jerusalem, that's going to have this seven-year covenant. This is why so many believe that a covenant will be established because Russia will invade, they will start to be wiped out, and a leader, a charismatic leader, will emerge who will negotiate the peace between Israel and the, na the nations, the Arab nations. And that's when probably the temple will be allowed to be rebuilt. They'll have some kind of agreement where you can have the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount with the mosque, the Islam shrine. There will be some kind of cooperation, but it's a seven-year treaty. Daniel says it's seven years, and three and a half years into it, the Antichrist will break the treaty, and he will go into the temple, and he will set up his image, and he will say that he is God. And for three and a half years after that, we have what is called the Great Tribulation, where all hell is poured out on the earth. And so Jesus picks up on it. Gabriel predicts it, Daniel records it, Paul clarifies it, and Jesus confirms. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, not those who are in New York City or who are in the Rocky Mountains, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. For there's going to be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. It hasn't happened yet. It's still future. And so last verse, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, till all this is fulfilled. I personally believe it's a 100-year generation. From 1948 to 2048, I expect to see a lot of activity going on in fulfillment of biblical prophecy in the next decade or two. Watch with me, will you? So my question is for you, are you possibly the last generation of believers in Salt Lake City? Your opportunity to impact Utah and the nations is phenomenal. If you and I will get in step with God via the Holy Spirit. So will you stand with me? Go back to your family and friends. Go and speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus says, for without me you can do nothing. And consider that you were born for such a time as this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you of the reason of the hope that is within you. To every people group, until Jesus comes. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.